Welcome to Crypto Sapiens, a show that hosts lively discussions with innovative Web3 builders to help you learn about decentralized money systems, including Ethereum, Bitcoin, and DeFi. The podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Crypto Sapiens is presented in partnership with Bankless DAO, a movement for pioneers seeking freedom from the limitations of the traditional financial system. Bankless DAO will help the world go bankless by creating user-friendly on-ramps for people to discover decentralized financial technologies through education, media, and culture. GM everyone, and welcome back to Crypto Sapiens. Today we are talking with Spencer Graham, aka Spengra. He is an early builder of DAO House, the no-code platform for creating and managing a DAO. We kick off our conversation with him sharing his crypto journey starting in late 2016, ramping up in 2017, and in 2018 co-hosting the Chicago Ethereum meetup. In 2020, he attended ETH Denver, which as he says, was an inflection point in his career, leading him to join Raid Guild. He describes joining DAO House, or Pokemol, short for Pocket Moloch as it was called at the time, a mobile-first Moloch DAO app that provided a no-code way for people to discover and create proposals, view treasuries, and summon a DAO. Eventually, a handful of people, including himself, developed the app into DAO House V2, which is the app we can all use today. We continue our chat by reviewing the DAO House platform and the many features that provide a rich and nuanced experience for DAO operators and members. There's a lot to unpack in this episode, so without further ado, Let's get started. So I got involved originally in Web3 stuff. I guess there's a couple of different phases. Sort of phase one was kind of like hobby, consume everything around me, <laughs> get really, really excited about all the stuff, but not yet do anything about it. And that phase started maybe in 20, probably late 2016, um, and then throughout 2017, it was sort of a big ramp up in that where more and more of my free time I was spending reading and consuming and learning and getting excited and enthusiastic. But it was really shortly after that in maybe 2018 where I started to attend and then host or be one of the co-hosts of a, of a meetup here in Chicago, the Chicago Ethereum meetup, where I started putting some of those things that I've been super enthusiastic for or about into, into practice a little bit. And then I continued to, to ramp up. And then 2020 ETH Denver was actually a big inflection point for me where I actually started to, to build things and get involved in, in a few projects. And then that, that led me through a couple of different uh, forks in the road to Raid Guild, which is the first DAO I ever joined. And I can talk about that experience and how it was sort of uh, eye-opening for me, but that really put me on the path towards focusing pretty much all my energies now on, on DAOs. So I came from this like kind of tech product management sort of, sort of place. Um, and ended up quitting my, my day job in, in that area in fall of, of 2020. Cause I was so excited about, about DAOs and there's so much opportunity to work on, on DAO stuff in particular. And at that time it was starting to work more and more on DAO house. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear about your personal experience at ETH Denver 2020 and your decision to join Raid Guild at, as your first out because here on Crypto Sapiens, we've hosted a few folks who have said something similar, that ETH Denver 2020 was a pivotal event for them 
in their crypto journey where they went from maybe being crypto curious to taking the dive into a deep dive into the space of Web3 and generally uh, into into DAOs. Um, so what was ETH Denver 2020 to you? And what was it that you took away from that event that was that crucial push that you needed to explore the space a little bit further? Yeah, it's it's hard to even like pick apart what what happened at ETH Denver 2020. Um, but I guess I can just sort of describe my my experience there. I, I went there basically knowing only a, a few people, mostly people from that I had met in Chicago as part of that that Ethereum meetup that I had been going to for a while, and I'd started hosting a little bit before. So I knew uh, a few people, and I had like been introduced to like a couple other people that I had not met in person, but out of the like several thousand or 5,000 or whatever it was of, of people at, uh, at uh, East Denver 2020, I only knew a, a handful. But there was something about the energy in in that building, in the, in the sports castle, up and down the, the spiral of, of people hacking that was just like incredibly motivating and and like fulfilling to be a part of. And I, I remember feeling like I was like finally doing it, like this thing that I've been sort of observing and participating a little bit as a like as a hobbyist, as like in in a, in a like talking about it. I remember having this feeling of oh, I'm finally doing this. I'm finally part of a team that's building something, and and that was an incredibly cool feeling. And I, I don't think I don't think at that point after that I w- it was possible for me to not continue <laughs> doing that even even more. You know, I find it interesting that there were these in-person events that, at least to me, it sounds like were very influential to your journey, uh, starting with the ETH meetups in Chicago and then leading to ETH Denver uh, in 2020. I personally really vibe with this because meetups to me were instrumental to taking that next step in my own personal crypto journey. So while I kind of came into the space purely as a speculator in 2016, seeing Bitcoin as a new uh, you know, asset class, it wasn't until I started attending my local meetups that I began to understand the impact of you know, cryptocurrencies and what eventually became Web3 um, in, in, in my, the role that I could potentially play in it. I think that there's something really important about these types of events and the people that you meet there. Would you agree? Yeah, 100%. There's, at least currently, there is still no replacement for in-person stuff, for IRL, for the high dimensionality of, of, of an in-person conversation or encounter or, or hangout. Uh, and, and also the serendipity of being able to just kind of run into people that might have shared interests with you based on some random thing that you could never predict or some random thing that you see on somebody's hat or sweatshirt or or whatever. Maybe we'll get there at some point in the, in the metaverse. Um, actually, I'm kind of hopeful that we we can. But as of right now, there's there's nothing that replaces the the breadth and the richness of of in person of IRL. Um, so I, I think it's no it's no accident. It's no surprise that so much of the energy in this space comes from or sort of shortly after people make connections in in the real world. I agree with you. And I think that East Denver has been pivotal, pivotal, excuse me, in kind of helping people change the way they think about this space. I found it 
very interesting being, first of all, that this was my first ETH Denver in 2022, that A, I mean, obviously a lot has changed. The number of people just generally that have, that attended the event, uh, it sounds like there was an explosion in interest and attendance to the event. But I think the programming was, you know, really comprehensive. Uh, I really appreciated the effort that went into developing that event. Uh, also bringing in so many different uh, contributors to the space, you know, in terms of the different, uh, I think it was a second and third floor, all the booths. If you wanted to learn about like the different builders that were building, maybe you didn't hear some of them speak, but then you were able to connect with them and kind of learn about their products. I thought that was all, you know, really interesting and and super, super motivating. It was also interesting to kind of hear the types of people that attended this event and maybe surprised a little bit at the level of expertise or maybe a lack of expertise in the people that were attendants, which I think goes to further the point that this probably was going to be something that was going to influence them to take that leap and become a more active contributor in the space beyond just maybe speculating on what a DAO is or maybe uh, buying and selling NFTs. <laughs> yeah, it was quite, uh, December 2022 was a, a wild experience. Uh, it was in at the same, like simultaneously amazing to see all of the new people and all the people who were, uh, as you're suggesting, showing up and, and being excited, even if they hadn't been deeply involved in the space previously. And that showed like great promise for, for where we're going and how many people are, are excited about what we're doing and want to get involved. And then on the other hand, uh, the, some of the uh, operational or sort of like experiential challenges that, that created with all of the long lines mm -hmm. and well, the, <laughs> the, the Buffy Cron effects and, and all of that. But I think for, for me, what, what was really striking from East Denver 22 was observing in myself the the difference in the experience um in, in like i said in, in in 2020 i didn't really know anybody i wasn't really involved um very deeply uh, i had I, I knew a lot but i was sort of just basically in like consuming everything mode and so i went to a lot of the talks and i tried to absorb as much information as possible um, and it was really great in in 2022 22 is equally great um, maybe even more so but for very different reasons. That experience forced me to recognize how many people in the space I do know now and do feel strongly connected to and how I've become pretty plugged into a lot of the stuff that, that's going on. So I found myself going to fewer talks because I felt like I already had a feel for what of a lot of those talks were going to be about and choosing instead to optimize for in-person connections with people that I already knew or had just talked to a little bit briefly on Twitter or or in Discord or what have you. I felt very privileged uh, to have had, like to be in the place that I that I found myself in. And I, I kind of continue to be, to feel that way. Uh, and I think a lot of it is, I owe a ton of that to the existence of, of DAOs and all of the people who are trying to build DAOs and trying to make this stuff work. The quality and openness and friendliness of all of these people is, is is really astounding, and I owe a ton to a ton of my recent experience to the presence of of that. Yeah, that's wonderful, and I like kind of what you're uh, describing here. Where in the course of two years, you went from someone who was, 
you know, maybe considered a novice in the space, not so, not necessarily driven by what you knew, but who you knew um, and the quality of interactions that you could make with the people that were in attendance to 2022, right? Being this person who, I mean, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this for you, like is influential in the space, both through the work that you do, but also through the thought leadership that you share with us. Um, so I think that that's really interesting and would definitely, I think, would uh, be inspiring, should be inspiring for anyone who's listening and thinks, well, you know, I don't know if I could ever reach a level of contribution where it's meaningful, uh, where I can make the connections that I need to make to be able to build richer experiences together with other contributors in the space. You know, I mean, if you're committed, I think, and if you're really interested in this space and if you're doing it for the right reasons, I think certainly there's going to be individuals that gravitate to your ideas or maybe even challenge them, but they do so in a way that can be productive and help create a much better ecosystem together. Totally, totally. So I wonder if you could describe to me your experience from Gitcoin kernel Genesis block, right? KB0. So I've been, lear- I've been really interested to learn more about this uh, program. And being that you're one of the Genesis members of you know, the Gitcoin kernel group. Could you describe a little bit about what that is and, you know, what impact that made to you? And just looking at, I think now they're in the seventh cohort, what, how far it's come and maybe the impact that you think it could make to anyone who may be interested in applying? KB0 was, was super cool. It was very clearly at that point, like pretty experimental and it was pretty loosey-goosey, and I actually really have no clue what the more recent blocks have, have been like. I haven't um, been as plugged in to, to what's going on, but it, it was pretty clearly experimental, pretty, pretty loosey-goosey in the sense that we're just going to throw a bunch of people into this. At the time, it was, it was a, a Slack space to suggest how early this was. <laughs> um, we're going to throw a bunch of people into a Slack space and kind of just see what happens and we're going to provide some programming that anchors the the whole thing and then we're gonna we're gonna have um like a little bit of like a tiny 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 amount of structure but otherwise it was it was very open very kind of choose your own adventure get it get out of it what you put in 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 a sense it's almost like a hackathon where there's like people you could meet and people you could talk to or you could also spend time building and, and kind of focusing focusing just with the few people that you were working on something with so I think it was almost like like an extended hackathon where you had to have an opportunity to build like more than just one-off relationships with potentially a whole bunch of people who have been kind of curated and like pre-selected for their interests and abilities and focus on on various things in the space. The the, the ability to be intro- introduced to some mentors and kind of some some other people who have been around the block, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also that's also pretty cool. I, I'm actually I'm I have not uh, kept up with exactly what's happening within the kernel stuff recently, so I should I should get back into that because I, I do think there's there's a lot of power to what they're doing. Yeah, that's great. I I personally uh, have recently taken an interest, and so I need to do a little bit more research. But I was uh, curious to hear from someone who was a Genesis member uh, what their experience was, what their takeaway was. Uh, maybe I should also reach out to maybe some of the more recent. Uh, members that have completed that program to also understand what that means. Because I think that Gitcoin, like DAO House, have grown to become 
these really mature ecosystems that provide a lot of value, not just to anyone who uses the platform, but certainly I think to the people who uh, can relate to maybe some of the, uh, you know, some of the, some of the ideas that are shared within each of those groups. I think, you know, Gitcoin kind of uh, champion in this idea of public goods and Web3 uh, brings people together in interesting ways. And so, yeah, that's good to hear and glad to hear that, you know, A, you were a member of that and that you were able to take uh, something away that, you know, hopefully influenced you in positive ways to continue to build in, in Web3. So let's kind of move forward into the into Dow House. So when did when did you come into Dow House? What was it when you first came in? Yeah, so I, I first came into and started contributing to Dow House in maybe August or so of, of 2020. Um, shortly thereafter was when I felt like I could I could quit my my old day job and focus full time on on all of this stuff. And Dow House was pretty instrumental in in enabling that. Um, when I when I first started contributing, I had just been at at Raid Guild for a, a handful of months and had had this experience of this incredible experience of like not really knowing again, not really knowing many people, but within kind of the safe space that the DAO structure uh, created, where I had the basically felt safe to take risks and build things and connect and experiment all by myself, but also all by all with other people and build connections that way was really a magical experience. I, I definitely did not have the words to be able to articulate why back then, but I still felt like there was something really special going on. And when when Dow House kind of came along, and again, I think this was less uh, conscious than sort of a, a vague feeling, but looking back, I definitely felt like that was an opportunity for me, maybe the highest leverage opportunity for me to help build something that would enable other people to have a similar kind of experience or feeling that I had started to have within Raid Guild um, at, at first. And I, I pretty much still feel that way. There's something really special about being in a DAO, especially a Moloch DAO, and we can talk about all the ways mm -hmm. that that's the case. Um, there's something really special about that. And and I think what, what we're doing and what I am uh, helping to do within DAO House is, is really important. At the time, Dow House was just actually pretty immature. It was it was Pokemon, which stands for Pocket Moloch, which is almost like a mobile first um, Moloch Dow uh, app or, or or user interface. Kind of no code way to to look at your Dow to see the proposals, to make proposals, vote on them, see the treasury, etc. And at that point, Dow House was just a way, like kind of a separate app, just a way to summon or would summon as our word for launch a new DAO without it, without interacting with it with code or or directly with smart contracts. And at that point, the the DAO house team had been like very much this is like a side project, et cetera, et cetera. But at that point, they were starting to to come together and and realize that DAO house itself was going to be a really valuable thing to to work on and turn into more of a substantial and and ultimately sustainable project. So there was a kind of a a team of a handful to maybe 10-ish people who were starting to to build up some of those ideas. And I got pulled into that by Deacon, one of the original Dow House developers. And at that point, we were kind of ramping up into a place where we were going to do some fundraising um, from, from our community. And at, at that point, then we started building what became Dow House V2. Dow House V2 is what you see today if you go to the Dow House app at app.dowhouse.club. And 
it's a fairly like it's like a pretty good um, comprehensive user interface for doing a lot of what you would need to do with a DAO. Certainly not everything, um, but it's it's got an ability to find other DAOs. It's got an ability to uh, to see your DAO and the, the your membership in that DAO, the governance power you have in that DAO, to see all the proposals, to make different types of proposals and vote on existing proposals, to switch between DAOs that you might be in with our kind of hub hub interface. And it, it has a number of different what we call boosts, which are sort of like add-ons or plugins that you can turn on or turn off uh, depending on what you need for your DAO or what your DAO needs. Um, and that's kind of been the, the basis for what DAO House is and has become over the last year, year plus. Um, right now, we're, we're going through, the, through a very extensive process to like almost entirely rebuild and rewrite the entire application, which we can get into uh, at some point here. Um, but my role became kind of a, a mix of a number of things. One was like product management-ish stuff, which is my what my background was before getting into crypto. Um, some tokenomic stuff. I started doing a little bit of writing and, and communication things. And then eventually started doing some like internal operations in the like a, what we call the Paladins group, which is internal operations, internal processes. Um, and that kind of led me into some of the compensation stuff that I've been doing recently. That's great. I mean, first of all, I think you define Moloch in uh, you know any uh, in your writings and in previous episodes. But briefly, could you just describe what is Moloch, and then we can jump into like maybe Moloch v zero, and then through v two where it's at today. Okay, so I guess we could start with what is Moloch. Moloch is sort of the the demon or anti god of uh, human coordination failure, and it kind of it comes from a couple different places. But at, at a certain point in, I think it was early 2019, there had been a bit of a DAO winter after the 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 DAO kind of crashed and burned after its its hack and the the Ethereum to Ethereum classic split. Not a ton of people were working in the DAO space, but there came a point where uh, a few developers recognized the need to create a way for people to come together and coordinate and pool their resources to give grants to, at the time, I think it was ETH2 projects. And so they they created what became the Moloch DAO framework. And that was the first Moloch DAO. Shortly thereafter, maybe a year or so later, Moloch DAO V2 framework was was introduced. And I'll, I'll kind of start there because most of what you need to know is is wrapped up in, in V2. Uh, but the the analogy that I've been giving recently is that a Moloch DAO is kind of similar to a multi-sig, uh, but with a lot of extra power and a lot of extra flexibility that is really important. And the reason I like to make the analogy to a multi-sig is that in a Moloch DAO, governance power, voting weight, that kind of thing, is uh, non-transferable. So unlike a a lot of the token DAOs today, which are defined by a transferable, essentially financial asset, where governance power is a financial asset that can be bought and sold and traded and, and leveraged, et cetera. In a, in a Moloch DAO, your governance power, your membership in the DAO is non-transferable. What that also means is that the DAO is permissioned. So the DAO is a represents or is a container. The DAO has a, a membrane around it 
that can only be penetrated. You can only kind of move through the membrane with the permission of the DAO as a whole. So just like a multi-sig, if you want to become a signer on the multi-sig, you have to propose a, a transaction uh, that adds you as, as a signer. In a Moloch DAO, you have to propose, make a proposal that gives you shares to as a member in the DAO. The difference, the big difference between a Moloch DAO and a multi-sig though, is that instead of a one person, one vote setup, in a Moloch DAO, any individual can have any number of, of shares, a variable number of shares. So that means voting weight and governance power can vary um, with uh, whatever the DAO wants it to vary with. It could vary based on how much funds each person has put into the, the public pool, into the treasury. It could vary with reputation or the, the duration and the, the value that you've created for, the, for that DAO over time. Or it could vary with, with any number of things. The important thing is that not everybody ha necessarily has the, the same governance power which hopefully is more reflective of the, the use case or the purpose for that DAO. The other big, really big important thing is that in addition to voting power or voting weight, your shares, your membership in a Moloch DAO also gives you economic exit rights or a claim on a proportion of a fair portion of the assets that are in the DAO treasury. So this is what we call rage quit. And rage quit underpins a, a ton of things and it's really, really important and really, really powerful because it means that you can put your own money into a DAO and make it available for kind of shared purposes for, for spending alongside other people's money uh, all towards a common goal or common objectives or different projects. But at the same time as it's, it's, it's a shared resource, it's also still yours. You still have custody over it because at any time you can redeem or burn your shares and receive your fair portion back. Of what's in the treasury. And that's really, really powerful. And it creates uh, a ton of other flexibility that uh, that allows Moloch DAOs to do a lot of really interesting things that is not really possible in other DAOs. Uh, one of those is that all Moloch DAO proposals are actually consent-based decision-making or consent-based action. So instead of having to have the whole DAO reach a, 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 a threshold, a quorum threshold, uh, to be able to pass or, or make decision, pass a, a vote or make decisions or or take actions together. Instead, each proposal can pass with just one yes vote and no no votes, which means that any individual from the DAO can create a proposal and nobody else has to necessarily react to it. As long as they're comfortable with what's going on, as long as they consent to what's going on, that proposal will pass. So there's very, very little uh, voter fatigue, for example, in, in a Moloch DAO. Uh, lots of lots of actions, lots of coordination can occur uh, safely because even if you don't if you don't like the result of a proposal, say somebody kind of uh, tried to pull a fast one on you and they they passed a proposal that you don't like, before that proposal actually gets executed, before the funding that proposal would spend gets spent, you can rage quit and safely take out your portion of of those funds. Lots more to to talk about with Malik Dallas, but I'll, I'll stop there. No, that's incredible. You know, I think that there's a lot, obviously, here to unpack, especially as how Moloch DAOs are differentiated uh, from maybe these multi-sig uh, DAOs as you were proposing earlier. You know, I think one of the things that I personally would be interested in exploring, and maybe just briefly, because it certainly can get into a very uh, deep and uh, complex topic, but that's the idea of like non-transferable power governance power. Uh, as, as you, I think, described 
in a Moloch DAO, it is not necessarily driven by a token economy, but maybe like shares in the project. Can you describe like the difference between how shares work to maybe tokens earned of a Moloch DAO and how someone can unlock these shares? And since they're non-transferable, what happens if they do rage quit? Yeah, let, let, so let's start with the, the last thing first, because that's that's actually the simplest. If you rage quit, what's happening is you're essentially burning your shares. So they they disappear, they get they they no longer exist. The the only way shares can be created is by approval from the DAO. So in order to get new shares, I you would have to create a proposal asking or requesting some number of, of new shares. But that proposal can, you can create a proposal at any time to do so. And so a, a DAO can have sort of a, a social agreement that if you do some amount of work, you're actually eligible to uh, receive new shares as a reflection of the work that you did, almost as like a reputation kind of kind of system, uh, uh, sort of a, an evolving, a growing and adapting reputation system. And if your proposal meets the, the conditions of that agreement that the DAO has made socially, then other people would vote yes on your proposal, or maybe more in reality, they wouldn't vote no on it. They would consent to it, and then you would get those shares. That is not terribly different from receiving tokens, some other DAO's tokens, in exchange for work that you do. But instead of being able to sell those tokens to somebody else, mm-hmm. you cannot sell your shares to somebody else. And there's tons of positive things about tokens and about having transferable tokens. They are incredible. They create an incredible like mechanism substrate for new new incentives and, and new incentive mechanisms. But they are also quite dangerous. And there's there's a lot that can go wrong if if your DAO is using tokens as as the way to to make decisions and take actions collectively. A lot of DAOs right now are just pure plutocracies where the, the richest people or the people who have the most tokens can just push around everybody else. And in some cases, that's okay. And in, in, in a lot of the early DAOs that we have today, people are, are pretty altruistic, so that there's not really an issue. But I, there have already been examples of, of, of some things that, that don't look really great. And as, as the space starts to expand and more people come in, the level of altruism certainly will go down to approach more of the overall level of altruism in humanity, which as we all know is 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 not super high. So if we don't include protections against plutocracy in our DAOs, we're gonna run into a lot of trouble. Uh, and, and that's where Moloch DAOs have a lot to offer. Because in particular, a, a token can work great alongside or, or inside of a Moloch DAO. And a number of DAOs that are using the DAO house platform today use Moloch DAOs to kind of manage their governance and governance power, but they all, but in as part of that, they have a liquid token that is transferable, that has a market price, et cetera, et cetera. It's just that there's not a direct connection between owning the token and having governance power. There's an extra step where you have to earn uh, or be given the governance power by the rest of the DAO. You know, as you were describing kind of how this works, uh, one thing that I think could help maybe solidify the idea of the process of the shares and how a member or contributor can unlock that or, or get rewarded with that versus tokens, because I think that's the most familiar way in DAOs today to earn either your membership to a DAO or 
to earn equity in a DAO. Although I don't think it's necessarily equity, but you know, just liquidity in a DAO. Can you maybe give us an example of how a DAO could use both tokens as an incentive, but also shares as equity in, say, a in a way that is remunerated regularly, uh, maybe at the completion of bounties, and how maybe they individuals can unlock that, maybe not as frequently as maybe tokens, but certainly with some frequency, so that they have an incentive to also. Uh, gain some equity in that DAO. Totally, and so I think what what I can describe is is a, is a really powerful combination of of a couple different tools, or I guess you could call it three tools. One is a a a token, liquid token, a transferable token. Another is a Moloch DAO, and then the third is coordinate, or it doesn't have to be coordinate exactly, but something akin to coordinate. And this this is a pattern that a number of of DAOs that use DAO House uh, take advantage of. Including our own, our own DAO, the, the the DAO of DAO House for our contributors. For example, what we do is every month we have a certain amount of certain number of our house tokens. It's 600 currently that are made available for distribution to contributors based on the results of a coordinate epoch. So contributors uh, make give token allocations to each other for like for a given epoch for the past month of of work and contributions that people have made. And the result is kind of a measure of intersubjective valuation of, of everybody. And that proportion then gets reflected in the in, in house tokens that get distributed to contributors. And we have an agreement inside of our inside of our DAO that says the number of house tokens that you receive from a coordinate epoch, you are eligible to you know, stake those into the DAO itself, into the treasury, in return for a proportional number of shares in the DAO. So it's almost like a staking mechanism, but we're using a Moloch DAO to do it. And we're using the, the sort of social contract or social agreement to govern that. So it's relatively easy, it's very easy to change if we all collectively decide that we want to take a different approach. So the, the flow basically is you contribute, you do good things, you receive house tokens, which if you wanted to, you could sell or do whatever you wanted to with. But you also have the option to use them to get more governance power within our DAO, to have more influence over the way we make decisions, to have more influence and more power when it comes to deciding how we spend and how we allocate our funds. So this is the kind of the combination of, of a liquid token and a Moloch DAO and Moloch DAO shares as, as a, a pretty high quality um, adaptable reputation system that is reflected in governance power. That is quite amazing. And I'm still trying to digest that a little bit here, but it almost sounds like the ability to unlock governance power in a DAO is almost provided equally to the amount that you can earn in a DAO, but the unlock is at the commitment level in terms of how much are you willing to commit of what you're earning here to earn more governance power over time. Totally. That's, that's really cool. I think that commitment is definitely really hard to measure in a DAO. And I think I want to explore this a little bit with you too, because I, I've heard you have this conversation recently, especially as remuneration uh, has been recently updated at DAO House uh, as well in terms of someone's commitment to a project uh, or to, to a DAO, excuse me, and then having uh, a certain amount of guaranteed remuneration per season or epoch. 
Yeah. So th this is our, I think we're in our seventh month of this relatively new uh, compensation program that introduced a new way to you know, engage with the DAO and as, as a contributor and get compensated. So previously we were essentially saying, all right, here, here's the work I did for this given month. Here's how much I think it was worth. I'm going to create a proposal and request that amount of die from, from the treasury. And we were actually doing that at, at the, the sub DAO level or the circle or pod or whatever, however you want to describe it. We, we say circles, um, at that level where there was kind of funding coming from our, our main DAO into each of those circles that then would get distributed based on this monthly proposal process, this retroactive proposal process. What we did about seven months ago is we introduced a new track. So you could keep on that retroactive track or you could, you could join the commitment track, which involves making a commitment as a percentage. So zero to, or I guess really in practice, one to a hundred percent of your capacity or time or effort or energy. However, you're, you want to define it. You would make a commitment for the next two months, roughly akin to a season. We call them compensation cycles. You'd make a commitment to, to Dow house and, and to our Dow. And, uh, as a result, you would, there would be a, a commitment coming back the other way that the Dow would compensate. You would pay you a base base compensation of some amount of die per month. It's actually a mix of die and, and house tokens that you have a, that you can decide on, on the percentages for, but it's basically a, a, a dollar value that you would get back from the Dow uh, each month that you were committed to the Dow. Uh, and that that dollar amount varies based on the percentage of your commitment, obviously higher for higher percentages, as well as some measure of experience or skill or maybe a, almost like a prediction of the value that you would create over the course of those two months. That second thing is something we're actually going through. Uh, we're having a lot of conversations inside of the DAO right now to try to figure out how we can do a better job of creating feedback loops for how that uh, that second dimension gets measured and updated over time. Uh, we have a pretty flimsy process for that right now. For that right now, that needs to become a lot more robust. So we're likely going to be making some sizable changes to the to the way our our program works. But on the whole, it's been pretty successful in enabling contributors to engage with the work and with the DAO and with DAO House in the way that makes most sense for them in the context that that they currently live in. Some people like the flexibility of just kind of doing whatever they can and then getting compensated for that. Some people psychologically like being able to commit and prioritize their work accordingly based on that. I, I fall in the, in the second camp, uh, but lots of people have been really, really thankful for for having that option. And it's a, it's a big theme for us creating optionality basically all the way down for contributors in lots of different areas. Yeah, I mean, I think that just reinforces some of what you described earlier in terms of, you know, commitment, both in terms of, you know, the unlock here, the potential of uh, unlocking more governance power within the DAO based on the amount that they choose to stake uh, back into the DAO's treasury. But also, if you are more committed to one project's mission, because it maybe aligns with you a lot more closely that maybe some of the other things that you've been contributing to recently, I can see why someone would prefer to have that optionality to be able to uh, earn more and then stake more and then have uh, a stronger governance present in that, presence in that project. That's really interesting. And I think also, I think that speaks to 
the ability for new members to maybe earn more governance power, even if they're coming in at a later stage in the life of a DAO, compared to, of course, maybe who someone who's been contributing for many, many years and has earned a substantial amount of governance power to a project, but may have done so while splitting their attention across maybe like 10 or 15 DAOs, which certainly happens. <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> it's such an interesting space. It's, it's sometimes easy to get distracted. I love the idea of rewarding commitment. Uh, personally, as a contributor to many DAOs and even to this project, CryptoSapiens, which isn't necessarily a DAO yet, it functions, tries to function along the rails of uh, DAO membership and incentives because we work so closely with DAOs like Bankless DAO who have helped through the grants to uh, promote the development of this type of content. It's really interesting to me. It just kind of really sparks a lot of ideas and a lot of what I want, want to keep exploring and certainly a lot of what excites me about what DAO House is doing. Yeah, uh, I think there's there's this interplay between flexibility and commitment that is that is really fascinating. And I guess you know, zooming out even further, something I've been thinking about a lot is is this distinction between different types of resources that are involved in DAOs. And when I say resources, I mean anything that a DAO uses to do something or achieve some outcome. So money in its treasury, other tokens, smart contract protocols, coordination mechanisms. Those are actually all examples of DAO-owned resources or what we can call shared resources. Mm -hmm. But then also DAOs are made up of all these other, other resources that are actually controlled by the individual members or contributors to those DAO. And we can call those, those resources like private resources, not as in privacy, but private as in like only a single person controls them. And commitment is a really fascinating concept. So basically like you are saying, I'm gonna, as a contributor, I'm going to commit some portion of my private resources, my time or my capacity or my energy or my knowledge, commit that to, to the DAO in the spirit or in, with the goal of increasing or, or in improving or growing the, the shared resources that I as a member of the DAO share with everybody else. And I think that interplay is really, really interesting, interesting because in DAO more than any other type of organization, there is respect for and support for the sovereignty of the individual contributor, which means respect for and support for their control over their own resources. In a traditional company, you may not have a lot of control over your own time. And you've kind of like delegated decisions about how to, how to spend your time to somebody else. In a DAO, you don't, it's still yours. And you still have full control of what you do with your time and your knowledge and everything. But there is a lot of benefit to focus and to, having some degree of legibility over who is actually working on what and when. So this, this idea of commitment, I think, is a, is a nice compromise that allows individual contributors, individual members to be sovereign while also joining a collective. And I think that's a common theme within Malik DAOs as well, is interplay or is like simultaneous or uh, what, I, what I think is fun to talk about as a, a superposition of uh, individualism and collective collectivism or a superposition between private resources and public resources. And I think if we talk, if we, if we want to get into like, what is a DAO and why are DAOs special? It's that, that is literally not possible anywhere else outside of DAOs. You can't do you like literally physically, literally you cannot do it without smart contracts. And that is what makes DAO special in my opinion.
Yeah, that's amazing. I feel like there is just so much left to kind of unpack. Obviously, some of your more recent writings, I was reading the anti-capture uh, blog that you recently published, and certainly your uh, recent tweets on you know the collective and then the individualism. I think all of these really present uh, some ideas that can either challenge or support some of the ways that we currently are thinking about DAOs and building in DAOs. I heard Chase in her podcast call you an underrated follow. And I agree. I feel like anyone who is interested in kind of exploring the space of DAOs and kind of doing so from the lens of someone who's actually building the tooling to you know, improve the DAO ecosystem, I think should definitely be following you because I think that you really present some really high level ideas, really some, some meta uh, ideas, and you break them down so beautifully in written form on your blogs or as tweet threads. So I would want to ask you if there's anyone that you follow on Twitter or you know who you read their writing and blogs or some other format as a podcast who inspires you to kind of maybe either challenging some of your ideas or helps you uh, see things some of uh, some of the ways that you think in a different perspective who you would recommend to anyone who is listening to also give a follow aside from you of course yeah, it's it's kind of there's there's so many <laughs> there there's there's so many people. Um, one of the things I may might, I think I might be weirdly proudest of is my ability to like curate a good Twitter timeline <laughs> for myself. Uh, as a side note, if you feel like you're struggling with that, the best thing you can do is turn off the algorithmic feed and just turn. It's, I think it's called the latest tweets option. If you do that, then you don't see tweets that people like or other random insertions or like maybe even you could say interruptions of your attention uh, or trespasses of, of your attention. And it's only, it's just the people that you follow and just what they're retweeting and, and tweeting. So it's, it's, that I guess is a, is a side tip. Highly recommend that doing that. The, the, the person that I have, it's actually a little bit outside of the DAO space, but the person that I have really gotten a lot out of, out of following is Dystopia Breaker on, on Twitter. She's always coming in both like hot, but also like super legitimately with excellent perspective on like cryptography and privacy and security and all of the fundamentals that are really important to this space. Um, I think a lot of times we, it's easy to get distracted by, or to get sort of carried away with all of the higher level stuff that's super awesome. And at the end of the day, that's what's important. The applications, the things we can do, the changes we can make to to technology, to society, to ourselves. But none of that is possible if we don't give due, due credit and due attention to the fundamentals that make it all uh, make it all happen. As a follower of Dystopia Breaker on Twitter, I feel much more grounded in in those fundamentals. So that's a, a high recommendation for me. Well, that's great. I mean, I just gave them a follow. So thank you for that. Anything you'd like to add here before we cut? <laughs> Probably I could go on for forever about, about this stuff. So it's always challenging to, to pick the, the one or two things. Um, but I, I think maybe I'll, I'll do two things. One, I'll, uh, invitation to, uh, to anybody who is interested in talking about any of this stuff to reach out to me and, and chat. I'd 
um, really enjoy the, all of this content and hearing different perspectives on it, and or or even just the opportunity to to explain something or clarify something is well, one if that's helpful to you to anybody, that's great. It's also helpful to me. It's a, not a zero sum or not a one directional kind of value flow. Uh, I get better and get a better understanding of things when I explain them, even when they're their own they're my own ideas. And then maybe second, and just uh, a plug for uh, for Dow House and for Malik Dow's. Um, they're in incredible tools that I think many more people, many more DAOs should be seriously considering. And I would love to talk about how your DAO or your community, whoever you are out there, can use a Malik DAO to improve and use DAO House to level, level your community up. And that's a wrap. I truly enjoyed my chat with Spencer, and I hope you did too. If you'd like to connect with Spencer, you can find him on Twitter at Spengra. To learn more about DaoHouse, follow them on Twitter at NowDaoIt, or go to their website, DaoHouse.club. Thanks for listening to CryptoSapiens. Please give us a follow, like, and a five-star review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next discussion.